0: Medical malpractice suits are often thought of as a new phenomenon when, in fact, the first malpractice case was recorded in the United States in 1794. Another great myth surrounding doctors getting sued is that it's all about the money. Today, we will try to endeavor into the question, why do doctors get sued? Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Jim Bream, an attorney with the offices of Quarry and Harrow, Jim concentrates on the defense of hospitals, managed care organizations, and physicians in professional liability programs. He has handled cases in the trial and appellate courts, and is a featured speaker and guest lecturer on various healthcare care and medical legal issues. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Larry. Are you Dr. Kaskill? And I say yes, and they hand me a piece of paper and say, you've been served. That is what every doctor dreads. How can we go about not being served?
1: Well, I think that being named as a defendant in a medical malpractice lawsuit is
0: unfortunately a part of the modern practice of medicine. So it's something that I can count on occurring over and over, and there's nothing I can do about it?
1: No, I I wouldn't say it's inevitable. There certainly are a number of different steps that the practitioner can take to reduce his or her risk of being named as a defendant in a suit or becoming involved in a lawsuit. Close one's practice and not see any patients. Let's hope we can come up with a few less drastic uh, alternatives to that. You know,
0: I guess the question needs to be asked before we explore this issue. Why do the doctors get sued? Okay, so let's go through some of the top few reasons why we actually do get sued. One reason we've talked about on your program already, and that's poor charting
1: just as a reminder to the listening audience physicians other healthcare providers all sorts of practitioners need to document the care that is rendered the continuity of care consistently and clearly in the medical chart and at the time of service not not at a later date hopefully contemporaneously at the time of service but there are some other reasons why physicians unfortunately find themselves on the other end of that individual coming in to serve them with a
0: summons in a case. One is... Well, I'd like to interject. I think the charting issue is extremely important, but that becomes important once you have been sued. That does not necessarily cause you to be sued. It is discovered once you've been sued that, oh, this guy does not chart anything and we've got We have a present in front of us. I would beg to differ with you, Dr. Caskell. Please do. I think that oftentimes what happens when a
1: plaintiff's attorney is reviewing a case for the potential of filing a lawsuit and they look through that case, if there are poor charting issues, if there are suspicious charting issues, if the charting is such that from the viewpoint of the plaintiff's attorney, the case is more difficult to defend— it is a better case to bring and more likely to result in litigation. For instance, let's take the case where the attending physician dictates his or her admitting history and physical two months after the fact, after the patient has died, and what he or she puts into that history and physical is at odds with what the consulting physicians, the resident, and the nursing staff have placed in the chart contemporaneously. A plaintiff's attorney looking at that case is going to say, aha, I have someone who is clearly trying to cover his
0: backside. He's not going to make it out of here without being named in this lawsuit. Jim, let me ask you this. How often are charts reviewed by attorneys to look for a lawsuit and are dismissed from that process and never even make it to the lawsuit process.
1: Believe it or not, Larry, in most states there's a requirement that a good-faith, reasonable investigation take place prior to the filing of a lawsuit. In some states, such as Illinois, there's a further requirement that the case be reviewed by a physician who is licensed to practice medicine in all of its branches and who
0: signs off on a report stating that there is a reasonable and meritorious cause of action. Let's pursue that a little bit because I know in other states, you can get anybody to kind of sign off on that, any sort of physician. It could be a chiropractor. It could be a dentist. It could be... So is Illinois unique in requiring now a board-certified physician in that field?
1: No, and there are some states that are even more stringent that require a review by a panel of physicians. Um, You know, we used to joke, too, that you could get Sam the shoe doctor to sign off on a report. I'm not vouching for the credibility of all the individuals who actually signed the report. But some states, like Illinois, are making a move towards in new litigation requiring the physician who has signed the report to actually disclose his or her identity. That way you can verify, are they somebody who has been practicing in this field? Do they have those qualifications that are necessary to review the type of case that's at issue? But to get back to the to the question, um, yeah, I, I think that in the vast majority of cases, the record is certainly going to be reviewed
0: before the complaint is drafted and the lawsuit is filed. Okay. I am going to say that I do a great job of documentation because I do these shows with you, and I am aware of it on a daily basis. So hopefully, according to you, I should not get sued for that purpose, for, for poor charting, what else can I get sued for? Or are you saying I can still get sued even though I'm the greatest charter since the history of mankind?
1: I think having passed the Jim Bream How to Chart 101 course certainly is going to help you through the process. But are there other reasons, other explanations? I think the most disturbing reason why physicians can get sued for the practitioner is the case of the bad outcome. Sometimes there's nothing that you can do to prevent being named in a lawsuit. There are certain bad, tragic outcomes where whether it's purely economics that care is expensive and that individuals need to fund that care in some way and so that the motivation to file the lawsuit is in order to get the economic wherewithal to care for this individual or perhaps it's a problem in the grieving process that a family member cannot get over the death of mom or dad or a child. And simply because of the bad outcome, they need to displace that portion of the grieving process onto the practitioner. Let's look at some of these economic factors. A brain-injured infant, one of the highest risks for being named in a malpractice lawsuit. The cost of care for a seriously brain-injured infant is millions. enormous. Yes, you know, And it's going to run into the millions. And who's going to argue with the fact that better therapy more therapy, uh, closer uh, medical supervision, and a greater degree of intervention is going to enhance the potential for a return to near uh, near normalcy in some cases, or even in some cases, just a better standard of living for the impaired individual.
0: Why is it that when bad things happen, I I understand the anger part where people can displace their their anger and not get through the phases of Accepting bad news. But let's say you do have a catastrophic birth and the baby is impaired for life and it had nothing to do with the doctor. Why is it that our society is still so primitive in that it cannot accept that bad things do happen and that sometimes no one is to blame? Are other countries around the world ahead of us in this arena where they accept that bad things happen and Perhaps the government sets up some fund to help those children. You've raised the key word society. It's societal. Whether other countries are ahead of
1: us or behind us, I think that that's certainly open to debate, and it's going to depend on your perspective. But let's look at some examples. In Canada, for instance, if you are on the losing side of a plaintiff's medical malpractice lawsuit, you pay. You pay the costs that the defense incurs. And I'm told that in most cases, you're actually paying an hourly fee. So that in Canada, there is very little risk of being named as a defendant in a malpractice lawsuit because they don't have the contingency Mm. fees. Nice. Let's take India, for example. I recently explored the topic of offshore surgery. And in doing that, I learned that in India, there are very limited malpractice recovery uh, laws that are available so that somebody who's injured in India doesn't have a great deal of recourse. Now, you ask whether that's ahead of us or behind us, and people might argue that that's actually behind us because in India, if you develop that infection, if you get MRSA while you're in one of their hospitals, the doctors don't care so much.
0: Their attitude is going to be different. I can see them, though, uh, going back to their primary care physician saying, you recommended I go to India. I'm going to name you in the lawsuit because I can go after you. I can't go after anybody in India. I agree with you. That's actually one of the topics
1: that that I explored is that this trend toward offshore surgery is actually increasing the risk to the home-based practitioner. Indeed, you send somebody over there, what do you lose? You lose continuity of care, Mm -hmm. right? You may not get the records. If you get the records, they may be in uh, a language that you don't understand. Or
0: what if your patient goes over there and gets an infection that you've never seen before, and we don't know how to treat it here. All right, I'm going to stop sending all my patients for appendectomies to Mumbai. Well, let's explore the third aspect of this. How was your conversation
1: with the patient who told you that he or she was going to Mumbai? Did you have what you would call a good bedside manner? Because I think that's actually one of the other reasons why practitioners get sued, perhaps the third
0: basis that we could talk about. Jim, I pride myself on having a good bedside manner. And I used to work as a waiter, which I think has helped me dramatically. I bet it has because, you know, manners are manners, whether they're at the bedside, at the table side. And I serve a nice Caesar salad. I was going to say, whether, whether you're
1: serving that martini, that Caesar salad, or you're serving up a flu shot, the importance is you make your patient feel comfortable, comfortable with you, comfortable with the process, comfortable with the diagnosis, and comfortable with the explanation
0: of the risks and the alternatives. In addition to that, I should probably have them sign something if I'm sending them off to New Delhi. I think you probably should. Um, But yet that probably won't stand up in court either if something bad happens. I was
1: going to say that in addition to making sure you have a good bedside manner with the patient, make sure you have a good bedside manner with the family and spouse and others who might be involved in that individual's care as well. Because after all, if you know the unfortunate outcome happens and that patient passes, your relationship with the family
0: members may dictate as well the presence of a lawsuit. Jim, I've read in some articles that there is a concept known as the four C's of risk management, and those would be using compassion, communication, competence, and charting. Which of the four C's do you think... We have not covered this morning, and can you wrap it up for us? Let's talk about competence. How to improve
1: competence? We need to have uh, adequate training and supervision. We need to have physicians that are willing to participate in the continuing medical education courses. Competence needs to be an ongoing pursuit for the physician. Competence does direct the quality of care, after all and that's competence for both continuity of care and for care at the moment of delivery. Don't become a rote practitioner or a cookbook practitioner. Make sure you challenge yourself with the questions. Have I thoroughly thought through my differential diagnoses? Is there a test that I should be performing that maybe I haven't
0: considered? These are the issues of competence. Jim, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're more than welcome. I'd like to thank our guest, attorney Jim Bream. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. If you have an interesting case out there that you'd like to discuss, please send it in with your emails to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.